Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Dave Gledhill. Dave is an ex-RAF F4 Phantom and Tornado F3 Navigator. This episode, he talks about operating them both, the differences between them, and also what his roles were as an RAF Navigator. This is actually the audio from the original video interview we did with Dave two years ago, uh, which is what Aircrew Interview is all about. We interview pilots, navigators, and ground crew to tell their stories on many different types. So you can watch Dave's and many others at youtube.com forward slash aircrew interview. So please enjoy. Okay, so David, when did your passion for aviation start? As a kid, I guess. I suppose the first time was when I uh, sort of stood at the fence at Leeds Bradford Airport and, uh, and sort of looked through the fence at the, the aeroplanes taxiing past and wished I was in it rather than uh, standing at the fence. But uh, yeah, probably early on. Um, and that sort of progressed through the air shows as, as kids do. And uh, Finningley was a fairly local airfield for me uh, coming from Leeds. So we used to go down to the Finningley air display every year and uh, I'd watch the Balkans getting in and think what a good idea that might be. But uh, I kind of changed my mind when I went through training and, uh, and I thought maybe uh, something like this might be a little bit more fun. What year did you join the RAF? I joined in uh, 1974, uh, having been through the Air Cadets and, and, and done my private pilot's licence and my gliding licences with the Air Cadets and uh, I got a, got a, a feel for, for what the aviation was about and I then applied to join the Air Force and, uh, and was accepted as a navigator. Um, I originally applied as a pilot, but uh, at that time what I didn't realise was uh, an awful lot of people were being uh, asked to leave the Air Force. It was uh, the Air Force was going through another of its rounds of, of uh, redundancies and the like, so a lot of people were actually leaving at the point that I was joining, which might have been something I ought to have taken uh, a bit more attention about, but uh, it worked out in the end because I, yeah, I did 37 years. So when you became a, a navigator, um, how long was the training from start to finish? Well, it, it was two parts. Um, you have the original training, which is uh, which is at Finningley, or which was at Finningley, and, and that was also broken down into three parts. So on arrival at Finningley, the first sort of uh, three months or so was on the varsity, and, and navigator training at that time was very much biased towards producing a Vulcan navigator. So sitting in the back, pointing backwards in the dark, writing things on, uh, on charts with a pencil. Um, luckily after that, we got to uh, fly a jet provost for a, a, couple of, uh, a couple of weeks. And that was to try and weed us out and try and decide who was uh, had the aptitude for going on fast jets. And luckily, I must have been—I uh, must have had something going for me because uh, I was—I was told in no certain terms that I ought to think about the Phantom rather than Nimrod, which was the, the first aeroplane that I thought might be a good idea to go flying. And uh, but then after doing the Jet Provost briefly, then we, it was back to the Domini, and we did a little bit more work on the Domini, uh, low-level navigation using the radar, um, and, and a little bit more high-level work as well for the. Uh, to go on to the, the larger aeroplanes. And at that point, you're streamed onto your aeroplane at the end of the Finningley course, and you find out where you're going to be posted. At that stage, you move on to what's called an operational conversion unit, and this is where you are actually schooled in the, in the art of flying the aeroplane that you're going to fly operationally. And in my case, it was moving on to the Phantom down at RAF Coningsby, and uh, the Coningsby course was about four months long. Uh, we were taken through a short ground school phase, which was about three to four weeks, and uh, during that, we learned the, about the systems on the aeroplanes, uh, what the engines did, what the hydraulics did, where the thing could go wrong. And we were taken through the simulator and told to, uh, to try various practice emergencies so that when we did get onto the aeroplane, we'd be better equipped to, to handle any problems that we, we found. 
Once you've gone through that, you move over to the flying side, and, and there you are given a conversion course. And uh, for the navigators, this was quite short. It was only four sorties. And, and basically, we just sort of navigated around the country using the kit and the aeroplane. Got a little bit of an idea about the radar and what it did. But the convex was really biased towards the pilot in the front seat. And, uh, and the pilot was told about the aeroplane, how to fly it, um, all its handling characteristics. And it had some fairly bad habits uh, in certain areas. And uh, a little bit of night flying and a little bit of formation flying. And at that stage, we were deemed to be fit to go on to the operational phases. Started off with the basic radar phase, and during that period, you were taught how to um, intercept another airplane. You pointed at each other, uh, maybe 50 miles apart, both traveling at, say, 400 miles an hour. And the idea was we had to run intercepts to engage with a missile, or alternatively to move around behind and, and visually identify a target. And that skill would come in, uh, uh, come in useful for QRA sorties off the north coast, intercepting Russian bears, for example. Um, so that was the basic phase. Uh, after that, we dropped all the tanks off the airplane, and then we got into the air combat phase. And that was three to four weeks long, um, and we, we were taught the skills of three-dimensional maneuvering. So uh, what to do when you came up another airplane when he was fighting back. Uh, basic fighter maneuvering, um, how to handle the weapon system in combat. Um, and then moving on to 2v1 and 1v2 scenarios where you're against two targets or against one, uh, one uh, aggressive fighter. And then the final stage on the course at Coningsby was called the advanced radar phase. And during that period, we looked at some more esoteric targets. So maybe a target flying above 50,000 feet called a high flyer. Uh, maybe a supersonic target doing Mach 1.5 against you. Um, maybe uh, advanced targets, maybe two targets over land in Wales, for example. And, and these more advanced targets uh, built you up towards being uh, of an operational standard. The final event was called the OPEX, and that was one sortie right at the end of the course. And uh, we were scrambled off to a combat air patrol. Um, and once we were up there, something would come through the, uh, the cap area, and we had to intercept it and, uh, and do as we were told by our ground controller. And at the end of that, if you passed, you passed and you were off to your squadron. So uh, that, was the, that was the training. Uh, you asked how long it took. Finningly was about a year or so and the, uh, the operational conversion unit was another four months. So uh, for a navigator, you were probably a year and a half to two years from starting off your officer training to actually arriving on your first squad. After your fast jet training, what squadrons were you assigned to? Well, I, I came through the, the conversion course and I was posted to a UK squadron, um, and that was number 56 squadron at Wattisham. And 56 had just formed with the Phantom. It, it had a long history uh, of, of Battle Britain service and, and before. Um, and previously it had flown the Hunter and the Lightning. Uh, but it re-equipped with the Phantom in 1976, just as I moved down to the squadron. So literally as the, as the Phantoms arrived, I followed them down to, uh, to Wattisham and, uh, and the squadron formed. I did three years down at Wattisham and then moved over to Germany uh, where the job was completely different. UK Air Defence and Germany Air Defence are entirely different sort of beings. Um, UK mostly at medium level, uh, medium level combat air patrols, 15,000 feet and, and above. Uh, the German, German job was down low, below 5,000 feet every day of the week and uh, we would operate combat air patrols down on the, on the deck uh, out in the low flying areas. Lots of fun, did that for another three years. And then posted back to the conversion unit as an instructor, and a further three years on the instruction uh, on the instructional side, which again was an entirely different beast to the uh, to the squadron work that I'd done. So after all your training, flying, when you first climbed into the F4 for the first time, what was it like? It was pretty 
different. But yeah, it, it's a very claustrophobic cockpit. The, the, the back of the Phantom is, uh, is, is confined, as you've just seen up the, the top there. The equipment, when you pull it all out, sits right in front of your face, so it's, uh, it's, it's quite claustrophobic. You're dressed up in all the gear. Uh, you would have G-suits on your legs, you would have the, uh, the, the life jacket around you, uh, probably wearing an immersion suit uh, in winter, uh, which is a big, heavy, rubberized suit. Uh, and then the flying helmet on top of that. So you're trussed up, trussed up like a Christmas turkey when you when you get airborne. Um, the Phantom is also for the backseaters certainly is it's quite a uh, it, a lot of people are prone to air sickness, and the and the reason being you're very warm in this uh, this equipment. The designer blesses cotton socks when he designed the airplane. Put all the, uh, the the air conditioning controls in the front cockpit, so you've absolutely no control over it, and uh, and basically uh, you you are warm. Add to that, the cockpit canopy slopes downwards. So when you're flying along, it it's, gives you a false horizon. You feel as though you're not actually straight and level. So all in all, the whole experience is quite uh, sick-making. So uh, first couple of couple of uh, sorties, you, you tend to be a little bit uh, green around the gills when you when you fly. Once you're over that, absolutely exhilarating. And the Phantom had charisma. And uh, I've got to say. Uh, even having flown the tornado subsequently, you never quite get the same thrill as, as flying one of these things. So, really great aeroplane. Yes, I, I actually flew in this very Hastings when I went through uh, navigator training. Uh, having been posted to the Phantom, uh, we were uh, asked to go along to Scampton, RAF Scampton, and we did four sorties in the Hastings. And the idea was that we would use the H2S radar in the back of the Hastings as a, as a radar lead-in tool. Um, because there was nothing else, uh, no other training aircraft equipped with radar, we'd sit in the back of the Hastings and we'd go around the UK and they were trying to teach us to do some radar navigation, which would equip us for radar navigation. I have to say for an air defender it was probably uh, not very much uh, use. Um, big old 12-inch uh, display on the radar. Uh, we had a tiny little 4-inch display on the Phantom, so not terribly realistic. Having said that, it's a nice one to have in the logbook, but I had uh, probably about 10 hours on this, uh, this great machine behind me. And uh, this was one of the airplanes I actually flew on the course. So David, this is the cockpit of the Phantom FGR2. Could you show us around the cockpit a bit? Sure, yeah. It's a fairly traditional uh, 1960s fighter type layout. For the pilot, the uh, control column was on the floor in the center. It's built for a right-hander. So the control column sits like this with all the various switches on the control column falling to fingers and thumbs. Um, on the left here, under the console, which you probably can't see, are the throttles. And they're, uh, again, fairly conventional, one for each engine, left and right. And the way it worked was, as you started the engines, you move them forward into idle. Um, at that point, you had what's called maximum military power. So that was in the, in the, uh, the cold power range. Push it all the way to the, 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 the firewall there, and that gave you the maximum engines, uh, or the maximum power from the engines without reheat. To get reheat, you rock the throttles outboard like that, and then push them forward. And again, right through to the firewall would give you maximum afterburner, uh, and it was uh, ultimately selectable within that, so uh, uh, from minimum to maximum. Rock them back inboard again, and then you're back in the military power range. So this control column and throttle is the main things. 
Services principally on the right hand side here, uh, but quite a few start switches and, and cabin conditioning and fuel systems down the left here. Um, but the main weapons uh, area is, is to the centre here. You've got a fairly traditional layout of flight instruments in the middle. So you've got the attitude indicator, the artificial, sorry, the, uh, the, the compass at the bottom here called the horizontal situation indicator. Altimeter on the right, that's the barometric altimeter. And then there's a radio altimeter on the left here. And this is the airspeed indicator, a weird sort of layout that, uh, that, that let you uh, operate supersonic as well. Um, engine instruments down the right there. Um, and missile controls across to the left here. This was the missile status panel down on the left hand side. And that allowed you to um, to selectively jettison weapons from the aeroplane, but it also gave you status uh, uh, symbols on the side here, either the sparrow, the sky flash, or the sidewinder. And little lights there would tell you what was going on. Up here is what was called the Elcos, the Lead Computing Optical Sighting System, gun sight to uh, to, to most of us, and that fed from a little um, uh, indicator down here onto this collimator lens in the windscreen, and the pilot would get the gun sight projected onto the windscreen like that, and he could see it uh, through there. To either side of it, things that he would need if he was in combat and pulling hard and didn't want to look inside. So you've got these things called indexes, which show you the optimum angle of attack that the aeroplane is, is at. And then here on the left-hand side, another indication of the angle of attack itself in a digital, sorry, in an analog format. This was the pilot's repeater display in the middle, and that, uh, whatever the navigator in the back had selected, the pilot could see on that uh, that that little uh, red display in the middle there. And these buttons here allowed him to select various modes for his gun sight uh, position. Other bits of kit, canopy levers on the here, an emergency one and a, and a, and a, a manual jettison. The undercarriage was a huge great lever on the, on the left hand side here, shaped like a wheel, so uh, even the dumbest pilot could, uh, could work it. Push it down and that would uh, select the undercarriage down, pull it up and it uh, came back up again. On the right here the same for the hook, pop it down and the hook would lower at the back, bearing in mind that the, carrier, uh, the, uh, the Phantom was originally a carrier aeroplane. And then the other thing that's quite important, the drag chute handle down here, and this was a handle on the, uh, the side of the seat, and the pilot pulled it back and latched it in order to pop the chute out the back. And then he could jettison the chute once he'd, uh, once he'd done with it down there. Obviously, I'm sitting on the, uh, on the ejection seat itself. And uh, it was a Martin Baker Mark 7 ejection seat. It, uh, it had two ejection seat handles, the top handle here, the bottom handle between the, the legs here. Obviously, uh, at low level, if, you, if, if it's hard to get down to the bottom handle, you could pull the, uh, the top seat. That would also bring a blind down over your face during the ejection sequence and give you a little bit of protection. The parachute sat in the back box here. Um, you're attached to it by a single combined harness, and these are all the straps for that. And you can see a manual separation handle there if you had to separate uh, uh, manual or uh, deploy your parachute automatically. Sorry, manually. You're sitting on a little pack under here, and you can see this is yellow in colour, and that's your survival aids. And in there you'd have your, uh, your dinghy, your aircrew dinghy, and various other bits of th pieces, things like water and, uh, and various other survival aids that you might need if you end up either in the North Sea or if you ended up jumping out over land. Um, so lots of good stuff there to help you out. And that's pretty much the front cockpit. Okay, this is the back cockpit. Um, Again, down the left-hand side, principally radios in the back on, uh, on the left here. Uh, moving around the cockpit, the, the thing in the bottom left-hand side is called the radar warning receiver. And this was a uh, piece of equipment that, that w there are aerials on the, the fin of the Phantom. And uh, basically, if another threat airplane uh, illuminated you with his radar, it would actually read out on this little display in the cockpit here and give you a vector and, and show you what type of airplane was actually illuminating you. 
and you could select various things on that to work out what it was. This thing up here, which you can see on the outside of the aeroplane as well, was came in in around about 1982. And we had a problem in Germany where it was difficult to identify other aeroplanes. And, and we often had to get into visual range before we could engage uh, to, to get a positive identification that it was a, a, a bad guy. So they introduced this thing, and it's basically a little telescope. And by locking up to the target, the pilot would put the uh, sidewinder steering dot into the center of his radar scope in the front there, and that would point you directly at the, uh, the threat airplane that you'd locked up on the radar. And that way, with a six times, mag uh, in fact, ten times magnification, this thing, you would actually see what type of airplane it was beyond visual range, and that would allow you to engage before you could see it. So a very useful addition to the, uh, the armory here. Across the bottom here, there's uh, some flight instruments, and again, a bit of a readout like the guy in the front had, so altimeter, uh, uh, horizon, and airspeed indicator, and then this tiny little gauge here was the range and bearing, so you could see what you'd fed into the inertial navigation system, and that sat down here on the right. The right, navigator did all the, uh, the setting up of the inertial and put all the navigation points into it, um, and, and then once it was airborne, then the thing just ticked away on its own and told you where you were, reading out onto the, uh, the, the, the range and bearing indicator on the, on the front here. This was originally TSR2 technology and uh, built by Ferranti, but the Phantom inherited it when TSR2 was cancelled. The main part of the weapon system there were the three bits right in front here. And uh, I don't know if you can see that uh, as, we, as we speak, but essentially there's, in the middle here, is a radar scope, and that pulls out. So when you were flying, the radar scope would actually be out in that position. And there would also be a camera on top, and sometimes a little scope visor. So actually in the back cockpit it was quite claustrophobic. You had everything sort of tucked around you. So this is the actual radar repeater, so you would see the targets on the radar on that display there. You would control the radar, and, and bear in mind that the scanner is in the nose of the aeroplane, and the scanner would go left and right, and the navigator would control the scanner using this thing here called the radar hem controller. And basically by adjusting that um, knob on top there, you could raise or lower the scanner to point at the target, and then squeezing that trigger on the back there would actually, uh, by putting the markers around the target on the radar, would lock the radar to the target, and then you could fire a Sparrow missile. So a very important piece of kit this here, the nav navigator's hand controller. And the rest of the functions were controlled on this panel on the left-hand side of the cockpit here. Um, turn the radar on, you select the mode that the radar would operate in, and various other range scales and scan patterns, and electronic countermeasures modes. And they would all be down, uh, selected on this panel by my, uh, by my left knee here. The final thing to mention is this little thing down here, and that's called the built-in test, and that would run a static test on the radar before flight, and you'd then know whether the radar was going to be serviceable or not for the sortie that you are going to go fly. I should also mention this stuff up here. Um, we had chaff and flares on the aeroplane. Now, chaff is, uh, is the same as the old window, uh, which was produced during the Second World War, thrown out by the Lancasters. Put little metallic strips into the air, and that looked like a radar target. And we could do the same on the Phantom, uh, push out window or chaff by using this control panel here and a dispense button on this panel on the, uh, the left-hand side there. We'd also put out infrared decoys, known as flares, and, and that would seduce an infrared-guided missile away from you, hopefully, um, by uh, igniting in the air behind the aeroplane, and then hopefully the missile seeker head would track on that rather than on your engines. So a really useful piece of equipment here. Final thing to mention is this panel up here. That's where the old ejection seat safety pins would go. So after you'd actually uh, taken the seat, uh, the, pan, or the pins out of the ejection seat, during flight they would be stowed up on the top there, so you'd know that your, your seat was live.
So what was the first time you went supersonic in the F4 like? Well, it was actually the first sortie I ever flew. And uh, part of the first familiarization sortie was you flew it with a staff instructor pilot. And uh, my first sortie, I actually flew with the boss of the OCU at the time. And uh, we, we used to get airborne and uh, disappear out off, off into the uh, wash area and uh, turn upside down, do some aerobatics, uh, fly around a bit, pull some G, and then disappear off up the North Sea and go supersonic. And uh, quite an experience it was. Um, the, uh, I mean, the thrill of watching the needles coming round, and it actually says Mac 1 on the needle here, uh, was, was actually uh, quite, quite exciting. That said, uh, when you think of the test pilots that first went supersonic, you know, in the 40s and 50s, um, they really had to struggle to get supersonic. The Phantom didn't even think about it, not, not through the Mac. Um, although to get really fast, it took a little bit more effort. But the, the only thing you actually saw inside was a little bit of a jiggle on the needles on the altimeter, and that was pretty much it. And Mac 1, of course, on the, on the, on the dials here. Um, in UK, we were only allowed to do supersonic over the North Sea, and we had to be uh, 30 miles off the coast and basically pointing away, and that was to avoid dropping a sonic boom on the, uh, on the east coast of England. Um, in Germany, it was slightly different. If you were operating above 36,000 feet, you could go supersonic. So we regularly used to do su supersonic intercepts over the uh, over uh, western Germany and uh, up at height, so uh, quite different. Again, down in the Falklands, which I did uh, briefly in, in the Phantom, uh, we could operate supersonic off the coast down there quite happily as well. So it, it depended where you were, but um, the Phantom was a, it was a little bit of a struggle to get it really fast. It was supposed to do Mach 2, but I don't know many people that actually made, uh, made Mach 2 at all. And to do that you had to have dropped the external tanks. Uh, with the external wing tanks on, which was the fit we normally flew, you were limited to Mach 1.6. So um, that, that tied you down a little bit. And to get to Mach 1.6, you went through a uh, fairly unusual profile. We would climb to around about 25,000 feet, and at that point, the pilot would put in the afterburners, uh, unload the aeroplane to zero units, and try to accelerate as much as possible. Once the speed started to pick up, and it was starting to go through the Mach, then uh, you would pull to about 36,000 feet, and then do a series of sort of undulating bunts and pulls to try and get the aeroplane, coax the aeroplane up faster. And invariably it would go up to about 1.4, 1.5 without trying too hard. But anything beyond that, and you really were trying a little bit uh, to, to, to get the, the, the greater speed. Most people waited until they were down on an armament practice camp, the gunnery exercises in Cyprus. And during those periods, then, with the aeroplanes were clean and just a gun on the centreline, it was much more uh, um, happy to go uh, high speeds. So uh, most people would try their fast runs down in Cyprus if they wanted to do that. In your opinion and experiences, what was the trickiest aircraft you went up in? I would think probably, uh, bear in mind, I, I never flew against Soviet types because I, I left the Phantom before it, uh, you know, in, in about 1996, before the uh, air superiority fighters came in. So I never went against a MiG-29 or, or an Su-27. Um, I would have felt quite confident against MiG-21s, MiG-23s, uh, that generation of aeroplane. But obviously, what we had to give us a yardstick was the Western equivalence of those. Now, we used to operate the, uh, against the Northrop F-5, which was the aggressor aeroplane. And the F-5 was quite a good uh, um, simulation of the MiG-21. And we'd, uh, we'd fly against the F-5s and they would show us how we, uh, we could exploit the, the weaknesses of that particular airframe. So we'd, uh, we'd, we'd work our tactics accordingly. 
The F-15 was a really good aeroplane, and uh, and quite often against that, you you got a bit of a bloody nose. Uh, it was uh, it was quite capable and flown by extremely experienced pilots, and uh, generally speaking, it took an awful lot to beat an F-15 and a Phantom. But that's not to say we didn't do it and do it regularly. Um, on a good day, you'd still uh, be able to be able to cope. But I have to say, by the time the Phantom was retired from RAF service in 1992, it was starting to show its age, and it was probably a good time for the aeroplane to to retire gracefully. That said, the Germans then upgraded their Phantoms. They fitted AMRAM, they fitted the uh, F-18 radar to their aeroplane, and it became, a, again, a, a, a very capable weapon system, and they proved that to good effect at Red Flag. So there, were, there was life in the old girl yet. Did you ever manage to go up against your US colleagues in the Phantom? I've just mentioned the aggressors, and we did aggressive phases against them from both Alcumbry and, in, in the early days, up at RAF Lucas. But yes, I did, many times. Uh, very capable aircrew. <laughs> Uh, all very capable pilots and uh, uh, trained to a very high standard. Um, so yes, um, glad they were on our side. And a personal question just for me, for my own knowledge I guess, uh, did you ever go up against the mighty F-14? I didn't, no, sadly, but I do have friends that flew it and, uh, and they are very complimentary of the aeroplane. Obviously it had a massive capability with a, uh, a radar that was even longer range than the Phantom radar, uh, the Org 9. Um, and it had the Phoenix air-to-air -air missile, uh, which you could launch at anything up to 100 miles, I think. Um, principally against a bomber target, but it was also very capable of the short-range uh, arena as well. Um, everybody that I've spoken to was extremely uh, complimentary about the F-14 and its capabilities. But I am glad I never had to uh, operate off a uh, very small rolling deck. That's one thing I'll happily have left to others. Then you transferred onto Tornado. Could you tell us what year and how this uh, became about? Yeah, I did. I, I, I flew the Tornado F2 when it first came into service. Uh, so I was one of the uh, first instructors on the new aeroplane. Um, I'd had my posting for about a, a year at that point. Um, a number of crews went through the manufacturer's course up at the British Aerospace Factory at Wharton. And, and there was about six to eight of them did a first course. And then they came back to Coningsby and they basically trained course number one and I was on course number two so it was a rolling case of you know one course went through and then trained the next course coming through and trained the next course going through which got a, a little bit interesting given that we, we were all brand new on the aeroplane um, I flew the aeroplane the F2 for around about uh, 18 months and then I got my first ground job so I moved away from the aeroplane for about three years when I was down in the Ministry of Defence um, before coming back in about 1990, and I came back as the flight commander for responsible for the training on the operational conversion unit, and did another three years there. So, uh, yeah, so I flew the Tornado from 1986 through to 1994, and that was uh, that was my last flying tour, in fact. How how did you feel transferring from Phantom to Tornado well, personally? None of us thought that the Tornado was the best aeroplane. I'll be honest. Um, Probably, I think, if, if you ask people, the F-14 may have been high up the list. Certainly the F-15E, although it didn't exist at that time, but maybe the D model. But again, these were not available for us at that time. So we were going to get the Tornado, whether we wanted it or not. So there was a little bit of um, sort of, not friction, but you understand what I mean. People were kind of frustrated that it, it wasn't the nice turning, burning aeroplanes that the Americans were operating at the time. That said, it was a big improvement over the Phantom in most areas. Um, but it just never quite had that thing that the Phantom had, that sort of charisma that I mentioned earlier. Um, 
it was a, it was a good jet, uh, although spoiled in the early days by poor radar performance, and it took some years to rectify that. So uh, I think bittersweet when I first moved over. Um, frustrations, but uh, nice to fly a shiny brand new jet. The, uh, the Tornado in its early days, um, because of some fairly poor software implementation, was a handful in the back cockpit. Um, some things hadn't been thought through properly. Um, the radar wasn't performing to the specification, and uh, we struggled with it, certainly in the back seat, in the early days. Um, there were some of the air combat modes that weren't very good in the front cockpit either, so it, it wasn't just the back cockpit that was at fault. And it took probably three years to get the first modifications through that started to rectify those problems. At which stage, of course, I was on a ground tour, so uh, I missed some of those early things. And it was actually only when I came back to the aeroplane in 1990 that the big leap forward was taken, and that was called the Stage 1 radar. And the Stage 1 radar really, uh, it, it didn't rectify all the problems, but it was a good step forward and, and, and a much more capable version of Fox Hunter. So uh, really, we, we, we struggled a bit in the early days and very hard work in the back. Um, it was, uh, there were some modes that didn't work very well. Um, the radar would lose association so it wouldn't see the targets properly. It would give you a real hard time when you were trying to lock up a target. And, and all in all, that made for a frustrating experience in the back cockpit for the first couple of years. In terms of performance, like for speed, thrust and agility, how did they both compare? Again, the Tornado was a little bit better all round than the Phantom. The Phantom, as I mentioned, wasn't exactly a turning aeroplane. Um, the Tornado, uh, you could operate to a slightly higher um, uh, angle of attack limit. Um, obviously with wings that could be swept, um, you could configure the Tornado for the environment that you were in. Um, if you were trying to turn, then the best turn was down below 350 knots. Um, and it actually, funnily enough, turned really tightly at 250 knots, albeit you need full burner to do that. Um, but it also had manoeuvre devices. It had leading edge slats, which made it slightly more manoeuvrable. You could lower the flaps uh, in, in air combat, again, which helped out in the turn. So generally speaking, it was just a little bit more agile than the Phantom. Um, the area the Tornado F3 struggled with was at height, and the engines were never quite powerful enough. They were, they were bypass, fan uh, bypass fan turbines, uh, which meant that above 20,000 feet, uh, particularly if you hung lots of external stores and tanks on it, it did struggle a bit at height. So uh, up at height, it was, it was a, bit of a bit of a nightmare. Personally, if you went to combat, which one would you pick? I think you'd have to go for the Tornado, really, because it did most things better. And certainly in its last sort of five years or so, it was a very capable aeroplane. Most of the problems had been fixed. Uh, the weapon system had matured. By then it had AMRAM, ASRAM, JTIDs, uh, towed radar decoy, uh, chaff and flares. It was, a uh, it was a comprehensive weapon system and it worked quite well in the final stages. So certainly the final standard of Tornado F3, without a doubt, is the one you would have wanted to go to war in. Uh, that said, in the early days, the Phantom, uh, I would have been more than happy to uh, meet all comers. Have you ever intercepted a Russian bear? That is one of my major frustrations in life. <laughs> and, and, and it's a story I told in the book. Um, I sat QRA at Watersham for three years and I tried every tactic in the book to try and get a live scramble. 
Um, I did extra queue. I took over people from queue when I, you know, if they needed to go off and do car MOTs or whatever, I'd, I'd fill in for them. I tried every single tactic. Um, I finally got one live launch and headed north, seven-hour mission with the tanker, and uh, we were told there was a bear coming around the North Cape and we were going to intercept it. Once I got up into the Iceland Ferrers Gap, I looked, I looked hard, and I couldn't find a bear anywhere. I eventually found a contact, and it was at low level, below a very low cloud base. And we descended down through thick cloud, under the cloud base, pouring rain, closed in on visual identification into about 500 yards on this target, thinking it was a bear, and it turned out to be one of our own Nimrods, which spoiled my whole day. Where the bear went that day, I have no idea, but he didn't come down to our neck of the woods. So I never did, uh, I never did intercept a bear. Um, I did intercept a couple of Russian maize, IL-38 maize, when I was down in Cyprus. And on that occasion I did luck in because I just happened to be lurking at the ops desk when we heard that these aeroplanes were coming around. And uh, they're coming down from the Black Sea um, and we were scrambled off in a, in a clean wing aeroplane with a gun. That was all we had, no missiles, and told to go intercept these aeroplanes as they came by. And uh, we actually went alongside, and I had the only camera I had with me was my little box brownie in my flying suit pocket. So I got some very, um, very uh, grainy pictures of the, the Russian maze as they came past. There was a sequel to the story, though, because uh, 1992, I believe it was, I ended up at the air show at Fairford. And uh, it was the year that the Russians had been invited to participate for the first time, I believe. And they sent across a bear to Fairford, and the bear parked itself on the apron and people were looking around it and uh, I was dressed as I am now with the old tornado patch on the arm and, and we found a Russian aircrew guy just wandering past and pointed hopefully at his aeroplane and he said yeah come along so we were invited into the cockpit of the bear so the first time I ever saw a bear was at Fairford at an air show and I got to sit in the cockpit so uh, life can be strange at times. You were also based over in the Falklands. Could you tell me a little about that? Yes, I did two stints down there. Um, the first time I was flying the Phantom, uh, I was an instructor on the OCU, and we were tasked to go down there um, and recover two aeroplanes back to the UK. The Phantom, the major servicing was done down at RAF St. Athen, and they had to come home to UK to get that major servicing done. So we were sent down to actually bring two Phantoms back with the tankers uh, from RAF Stanley, which is where we were based at the time. Uh, through Ascension Island to RF Coningsby, uh, which is what we did. So I only spent about a month down there the first time, um, which was a lot shorter than most of the other people were doing at, at, at that, uh, that time. But I did get to see Stanley. I did operate from Stanley off the metalised runway down there. And uh, every day of the week we used to fly in and out of the cable, the uh, rest of cable, which was stretched across the runway. The runway itself was actually metal matting, and uh, we operated from that. Fully armed aeroplanes two external tanks, a gun on the centre line, uh, off 6,000 feet of, uh, of metal, which was quite interesting. The, uh, the cable itself was an unusual one because it was much stronger than the cables that we operated in UK. The pull-out on a standard UK cable was about 1,300 feet. Uh, the cable at Stanley only pulled out 600 feet, and for example on a carrier it only pulls out 300 feet. So it was virtually a carrier-arrested landing after every sortie. Uh, that, that was quite demanding in, at, at times because we were landing quite heavy uh, so the whole experience was quite uh, quite interesting so that was my first time down there at Stanley um, my last flying tour as it turned out was actually as OCE 1435 flight I then flying the Tornado F3 
and I, uh, I, I commanded the flight down there. Four aeroplanes, 55 troops, uh, 8,000 miles from home with my own little train set and uh, quite, a, quite an interesting experience it was too. How did their flying differ from the UK over there? The airspace was much clearer. Um, we operated by then from RAF Mount Pleasant, which was a brand new airfield um, uh, over about 30 miles west of the capital at Stanley. Um, you could operate at low level, completely unrestricted, anywhere over the islands. And I think that apart from the penguin colonies and the seabird colonies, and, uh, and I think a chicken farm, that was about the only airspace restrictions we had. Um, it was quite enlightening because the islanders wanted to see us every day of the week. If you flew past a settlement, they were really happy to see you and they would ring up afterwards and say how nice it was to see the aeroplanes come by. So they really did think it was their air force looking after them, which was a nice, nice uh, situation. Um, we could operate from sea level, from 250 feet over the land, up to infinity, as high as the tornado could go. And given that we were operating at that time with uh, only four weapons on board in my time, um, and no external tanks, we could actually get to a fairly reasonable height in that, in that configuration. So yes, very free airspace and uh, uh, good for day tactics. You also did an exchange with the US, could you briefly tell us about that? I did, I did, I did two, um, both ground tours unfortunately, I, I didn't quite make the list for the, uh, the flying slot which would have been nice, I, uh, a good friend of mine ended up in the uh, back seat of an F-14 which would have been lots of fun, but I never quite made that. But I did uh, one tour down in Texas, uh, um, that was um, uh, a staff job looking at information operations, so the use of uh, sort of media and computers and what have you in warfare which was great fun, San Antonio, Texas for three years. But my last tour over there was as um, the UK liaison officer at the US Air Force Warfare Center at Nellis Air Force Base, just outside Las Vegas. Um, this is the home of Red Flag, the major annual flying exercise. And although Red Flag wasn't my prime responsibility, my main responsibility was to operate trials over there of our own aeroplanes. Um, I did get involved with Red Flag to quite a large extent. Um, but I was also the liaison officer, so if the general at the Warfare Centre had any questions about Air Force operations or how we operated, then I was the man he would come to. And I split my time between that and the trials job. So we, uh, we would take aeroplanes over there once a year um, on, a, on a big exercise, and we would actually run a, a series of trials on the ranges outside Nellis. Well, when I retired, I, uh, I, I'd been quite a, uh, an avid photographer when I was uh, flying. I, uh, I used to take my camera along with me quite a lot. Um, a, lot of the, the, uh, a lot of the pictures that uh, ended up in the book I'd uh, collected over the years. And I thought it might be an idea to produce a sort of a you know, coffee table book with uh, lots of pictures in it. So I, I touted around a couple of publishers and, and, and tried to generate some interest. But uh, generally speaking, they weren't too thrilled on the idea of a, a coffee table book. So I, I eventually uh, spoke with, uh, with a commissioning editor who said, right, well, the deal is, if you come up with a few chapters to go with it, then we'll think about publishing it. So uh, that was where Phantom in Focus came in, and that was my first book, which was published in 2012. Uh, took about two years to write, and, and then the, the pictures were included, and, uh, and it became a, you know, it, it, it seems to have received quite good reviews since. Uh, I followed that up with a, uh, another book, uh, 
called Fighters Over the Falklands, and that was uh, basically uh, a sort of a, a summary of my experiences and what have you, commanding the flight down in the Falkland Islands. But also a mention of my earlier experiences when I was on the Phantom Squadron. So, uh, yeah, two books out there at the minute, and a third to follow, which has literally just gone to editing now, and that will follow on in the same theme as Phantom in Focus and be called Tornado S3 in Focus. Um, what I plan to look at in that book is a little bit more on the politics of the aeroplane because that's the stage of my career that I was at when the tornado was coming through. So although I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the aeroplane in its early days and uh, some of the fox hunter problems, for example, uh, there'll be, still be a few flying stories in there to keep everybody happy, but also a little bit more about the politics and the, the, the development of the aeroplane and what was wrong and how we fixed it. So, yeah, so three books. I've also uh, given a, a little uh, try of a little bit of fiction. So I have one self-published novel out there called Defector, and that looks at a uh, hypothetical situation of a, uh, an Su-27 flanker pilot who defects from uh, the Soviet Union, brings his flanker across to the west, and uh, his exploits of uh, how he gets across into West German airspace and what happens to him once he's there. So, so before you actually started publishing, did you review any courses in writing, or did it come naturally to yourself? No, I think as an Air Force officer, you're uh, schooled in the uh, in the disciplines of uh, you know the grammar and the uh, and the service writing. So uh, that kind of comes naturally by the time that you uh, you've, you've been uh, in the Air Force a good few years. But no, never any formal training. Although I did do an A level in Eng English literature, so I guess that was a grounding way back at school. But uh, no, nothing, uh, no creative writing courses or anything like that. It's naturally good then. <laughs> Hopefully, the reviews seem to be okay. <laughs> So, what can we expect to see from your future writing? Well, I've, uh, as I say, one, one just going into editing now, so that'll be out probably in November. Um, and uh, we've got a proposal in for a follow-on book looking at operational test of combat aeroplanes, hopefully looking at some of the, uh, some of the pitfalls of how we test aeroplanes and what goes right and what goes wrong. Um, and a few more novels with a bit of luck. I'd like to uh, follow up with a couple more, and I have, uh, I have a couple that are nearly ready to go. So we'll see if a publisher was, uh, is interested. If not, we'll uh, we'll try Amazon Kindle yet again. So do you have a writing process? Is it every day, certain amount of hours, certain amount of days? No, and, and to be honest, I try not to. I try to write when I feel like it. Uh, I'd hate to get writer's block. So it tends to be a case of when I feel like it, I'll go up into the study and tap away at the computer. Um, I have a format. I, I, I sort of break it down into the sort of number of chapters that I want to produce, and I know roughly what I want to put into each chapter. And then I work it around, and I'll do one bit of a chapter one day and one bit of a chapter the next day, so that it doesn't get tedious. Um, hate working to deadlines, but inevitably that happens. And uh, normally the last two weeks before it goes into the publisher is normally a little bit hectic. But uh, hopefully it, I'm, I'm a little bit better prepared now that I know what I'm trying to do. Phantom and Focus, do you expect all your books to be successful? I don't think you can ever say that. Um, it's only as good as the uh, the content, I guess, and, and it's actually quite difficult to pitch uh, who is the target audience, and I, I think generally I, I like to think that it's um, enthusiasts, ex-aircrew, ex-ground crew are probably the key people that would be interested in the books that I write. Um, but then each of those has a different interest, so it, it's always hard to pitch it right. I try not to go into too much technical detail because I think uh, even I start to glaze over when you get into the technical stuff. 
but it's pitching it just enough so that it's credible, just enough that it uh, it gets to the root cause of uh, or, or the root of what people want, without going overboard and, and you know coming up with gobbledygook that nobody can understand. So getting that balance right is is, is one of the one of the tricks of the trade. So I'm guessing one of the hardest parts for a writer is probably the ideas getting to that point. It is, and and so far it's been easy in that I uh, started with the Phantom, I followed up with the Falklands, I uh, followed up with the Tornado, which is basically my career sort of chronologically. Um, I've got an awful lot of stuff on operational tests, which is what I did for the last 10 years, which uh, is probably good material. You get into the areas of some things you can talk about, some, some things you can't, because obviously what I try to avoid is current aeroplanes and uh, their current capabilities, because we don't want to give the bad guys too much, uh, too much help. Um, so it's always easier to choose an aeroplane that's gone out of service. But uh, that said, I'm sure there's, uh, there's a few more books in me yet. So if you had one major tip for future writers, what would it be? I would say probably write what you know. I, I, I don't like to move into areas that I've not done. Therefore, I, I don't want to lack the credibility. So I try to, uh, I try to choose subjects that I'm familiar with subjects that I enjoy and aeroplanes has been a lifelong passion uh, but having said that I'm lucky in that a lot of people are interested in aeroplanes and want to read about aeroplanes uh, in a book so uh, that that is a natural help to me uh, but I think that would be it you know be yourself and, and, and tell the stories that you understand And I do have a website that covers all the books and all the content and, uh, and some uh, good aeroplane pictures as well. And it's uh, dgmedia.webnode.com. Right, so a bit more of a personal side of you. Do you have any hobbies? Well, yes, I guess so. I, I, I kept my fly, uh, private pilot's licence when I retired from the Air Force. Um, I've been a little bit tardy recently, not been flying over the last couple of months, but I, uh, over the last uh, three or four years I've been flying a Cherokee from RAF Waddington, so, which is great fun to be able to get airborne still and potter around the Lincolnshire countryside. Um, I promised myself when I retired I'd take up golf, and I haven't, um, so I'm not quite around to that. So there's something that I can turn to. And I'm still, I still enjoy the photography, uh, both aeroplanes and other, other subjects. So, uh, yes, I... Uh, I turn my hand to most things, but I also uh, spend a little bit of time. I volunteer for the uh, Citizens Advice Bureau, which is a uh, charity, as we all know, and uh, help people out on various sort of day-to-day -day problems. So I keep myself busy. Do you have a favourite TV show? Um, I'd probably embarrass myself if I told you what it really is, but uh, yeah, quite a few. And uh, I must admit, I, I do tend to watch things like the nine o'clock, uh, not the nine o'clock news and QI and uh, programmes like that on some of the channels. And uh, maybe the uh, my real favourite ought to remain classified. <laughs> do you have a favourite tipple? I do, and that has to be malt whiskey. It, I love it. It hates me. <laughs> if you could have any other career, what would it have been? Sorry, can you say that again? If you had any other career, what would it have been? That would be difficult. It would have to be something aviation-related, I think. Uh, aviation was where I started and was where I finished, and uh, I can't imagine life without aeroplanes. Have you been any air shows this year? I have. I came here to Newark, and, uh, and, and I helped out on this particular aeroplane, showing people around the cockpit. Uh, Newark have an annual event called Cockpit Fest, um, and the, uh, these dedicated enthusiasts bring their cockpits around to Newark every every year and, and run a competition and run the show and the public are invited. 
great event and uh, lots of fun. But I do, I, I get around to as many air shows as I can, although probably fewer than I would like. But my next event will be in a couple of days' time at uh, East Kirby to see the Three Lancasters event, which will be quite an experience, I should think. And another final one. Do you ever get sick of talking about your flying career? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. We hope you all enjoyed it. And don't forget you can watch all our other interviews with pilots, nabs and ground crew on many different types at youtube.com forward slash aircrewinterview. And don't forget to subscribe. Cheers.